Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinus, Makalua, the main team, Mega Bears fan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Polycast. Is this number 362? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. I'm Canis Albinus, who hopefully is back permanently now. We'll see about that. Joined with uh, Makalua. There was a class who can't get, keep a hold of things because I spilled stuff coming back to my room earlier. Oh, boy. The me and team. Nothing could possibly go wrong. Mega Bears fan. Mornings are difficult. And our soon-to-be erstwhile temporary permanent fill-in uh, co-host, Dan Q, who thankfully took over my part place while I was sick. When you spell something, you probably want to reach for the paper towel and not the toilet paper. Unless you're out of one of those, and then whichever one works. Although you should be careful what you put in the toilet, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> the Especially entire roll the paper towels. I mean, if you don't want it to function anymore, I suppose that's true. That's, that's a good, good approach. Oh, it'll function, just not the way you want it to. <laughs> <laughs> it's true that it still does something. <laughs> As uh, function would say in uh, in their gig, you make the plumbing interactive. Um, I would like a change to the user interface, please. As would I. Let's go. Wouldn't we all? So, audio is still going. There we go. I hear it now. You heard it a moment ago. Haha, I did not talk over the audio cues this time. Hooray for me. Nope, the rest of us oh, did instead. I see how it is. <laughs> yeah, I everyone did else did it for me. I'm not going to name names, but everybody... Except me. I was I was I also behaved myself. I'll start everybody but the center. Alright. Well, I'm sure that uh, our loyal listeners probably know this, but if uh, you didn't, there is new DLC out for Civilization Six. It came out last uh Friday, I think. Friday, Saturday, something like that. I think I think it was Thursday. Thursday, Thursday? the twenty first of May. Mm-hmm. One of those days we're all still locked down partially, so the days all kind of blend together. Uh, I But uh, I think everyone here has uh, probably had it for about a, a good week or so. Uh, Nine days. Is, yeah, I hope everybody is enjoying it. I certainly have been enjoying the time that I've been playing as Grand Columbia, who is uh, quite the military powerhouse. Uh, in this uh, DLC. I've yet to play as the Maya, so we'll hopefully talk about them some more next time, but we did the first look last time, so... I played uh, as the Maya, so we can talk about that later. Okay, yeah, sure. If people have played at it, we'll uh, we'll discuss it. Uh, so, yeah, Grand Columbia. Uh, crazy strong military sieve. Uh, I mean, yeah, I was gonna say, do to be nerfed, probably, because it's a little too much. But, like, how do you nerf them, though? Like, nothing in their abilities is, like, percentages or, like, yields. It's just, like, they get the... So, for the people who maybe aren't aware, uh, Grand Columbia's uh, abilities, their national ability, I, I hopefully I'll get this all correct, 
and not get the wrong ones in the wrong places. But their national ability is uh, a a her, a Ergito. Yeah, I don't even have it. This is from memory. I don't even have it brought up in front of me. So if I'm oh my gosh, come on, it is EP. It is the Yusivji ability is EP. There you go. I said I wasn't going to type while we were live, but I have to. Grand Columbia. It's I have your article up, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I forgot to do that. It's more again. Mornings are difficult. It is nine a.m. on the uh, the West Coast where I am, and I just rolled out of bed like twenty five minutes ago. So, um, yeah, they get plus one movement for every unit the whole game. Uh, that also includes, by the way, civilian units and religious units. Uh, does anyone here know if movement bonuses uh, are conferred to air units in any way? Like, does it increase their range or anything like that? That's something that I've always wondered about with the, the Civ Six. No, no, I'm very certain it does not apply to air units. Yeah, so because that's a that's a range units. as opposed to a particular number of moves that it can conduct on a turn. Right, yeah, and, the game uh, treats those differently mechanically. Yeah, and I, I played with Grand Columbia enough to get into the advanced eras where I actually had air units, and I can confirm that you cannot rebase them more than once in one turn. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I think air units are like the only units of Grand Columbia's that don't benefit in any way from the uh, plus one movement. But another interesting thing that they have as part of that power is that the unit can move and take actions, including attacking after taking a promotion, which means you can take damage. Uh, or during another player's turn or from a barbarian or whatever, get a promotion, use the promotion to insta-heal 50 hit points, and then attack again with that unit or run it away, uh, all on the same turn. Which, uh, that can be a real battle changer. Yeah, that alone is super powerful, and that's even before you get into their special great generals and stuff, and their unique unit. I haven't tried yet, but can you, like, if you have the ability, uh, the promotion on your your unit allows you to attack and then move. Would that also allow you to attack then heal? Possibly. I don't know. I have not. Uh, I, I have not I, encountered I think, that scenario yet. But that's something that comes to mind with this. I think yeah, it's like you, could, you could potentially get that with a recon unit where you have the can move after attacking, so you might be able to, yeah. to do that. In that case, you wouldn't be able to attack again, but if you had, like, say, a crossbowman with the one extra attack, that is something that is hypothetically possible. It no, depends on how... I think Light Cow can get it too, right? It depends on how action economy is managed. Um, if the unit expends a movement point when it is being promoted, it does not. And well, in that case, it probably does allow you to attack, then heal, then move. Yeah, I'm confident that uh, taking the promotion does not cost a movement point. It's just that normally it ends your turn. It probably yeah, should. Yeah, that might be one way to maybe rebalance or potentially nerf Grand Columbia, but even then it would still be a minor thing. Um, but yeah, in, in addition to those national abilities, uh, Simon Bolivar's leader ability, which Mackie already alluded to, is that he gets a free Commandante General unique unit at the start of every uh, new era. Uh, just for the record, this does not include, include the era in which you start the game, so you do not get a Commandante for free at the start of the ancient era, and if you do an old era start, I tested this, uh, for example, if you start in the Renaissance, you do not get a Commandante General for starting in the Renaissance, you'd have to wait until you pass into the Industrial Era to get that next one. So, you cannot do, like, an Industrial Era start and just, like, begin the game with four Generals. Uh, It does not work that way, thankfully. 
Um, and every one of these Commandante Generals has uh, the same passive effect of uh, plus five combat strength and plus one movement to units that are within two tiles. So that's another movement point that Grand Columbia is like guaranteed to get for most of its units. Well, that's uh, what generals do always. Yeah, right. I, I think that's exactly the same. The combat bonus and stuff is exactly the same as regular great generals. Um, yeah. But here's the kicker. The Commandante General does not replace the great general great person unit, which means that Grand Columbia can still build encampments and the associated buildings and can still recruit great generals, and those bonuses stack with the Commandante General, which means that units that are accompanied by a Commandante General and a great general have plus 10 combat strength and plus 2 movement and, well, sorry, plus 3 movement total, including the national ability, which, again, is just crazy strong. Like, any one of these abilities, bonuses, would be, like, a good thing for a military-oriented Civ to have. But Grand Columbia has all three. I, I think that's how you nerf them. You make it not stack the Great Generals. Because we had stacking Great Generals in earlier versions of the game. It was taken out because it was considered or, to be too strong. So... Yeah, yeah that's that's, a, <laughs> that's the most obvious change we can see here. If you want to bring Grand Columbia down a little bit, is to not give them the ability that was intentionally removed for being too strong previously. Right. Like, my idea for, my best idea for nerfing them would be to make it so that the Commandante General does, in fact, replace the Great General. Uh, I mean, I don't know what you would do with Great General points that you get from encampments. I guess they just don't do anything similar to what, uh. uh I, I think it's fine to just have more Great Generals if you go for them. So, you, like, if you want to have two generals and two armies in two different spots, go ahead. Go find your extra so, Great General. You're saying you should still be able to get the regular great generals, they just should not uh, be able to They just to don't stack. stack with each other. Yeah, just like just like every other Civ right now. Like, you can get multiple great generals who would apply a bonus to the same units and put them near each other as any Civ in the game right now. It just doesn't give you the plus 10. This actually brings up a, a, a question that I have. Uh, embarked units, do they benefit from both the presence of a general and an admiral? I, that's something that I've... Uh, I've not tried. <laughs> I've <it would laughs> done my best on, to avoid embarked units seeing combat, so... I, it would only I'm not sure. Defense, no, no embarked uh, land unit yeah. can attack, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if they... Well, they can attack, attack in the cities, right? That's true, yeah. So I wonder if uh, if they're double-counted as a, a land unit and a naval unit in that instance, which might be one other way to stack bonuses, but... Anyway, on top of all that, later in the game, you can also get supply convoys, which further increase movement points, which means that with all of those things, their national ability, a commandante general, a uh, regular great general, and a supply convoy, uh, late game Grand Columbian units have plus four movement. You're forgetting the policy card, too. Right, yeah, lot. there is a policy as well. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I think it's only when you start in, in friendly territory, though, right? Yeah, but if you have that much movement and you can just, like, shatter cities because you can move everything in range of it immediately, uh, then once you've conquered that city, that's your territory now, and next turn you'll have the movement again. So right. it's a pretty significant card for the late game. You're talking about cavalry units, you know, like tanks and, and helicopters and whatever, like having, like, eight, nine... You can straight do this movement. with infantry already, with a generic um, civ, if you have the great general bonus, um, fascism, the policy card, all that going. You can easily uh, have, well, I think they've got some units of promotions for it as well, but you can easily have, like, five uh, move units, and if you're on, like, roads, railroads, uh, pretty easy to just take a city uh, from the previous city you took, one after another. 
especially considering how close the AI likes to build its cities together. I mean, you may yeah. need mo- movement bonuses in most cases when you're invading the AI because all their cities are three or four tiles apart. Yeah, but like um, even just five moves, which you can get on infantry, is definitely enough to uh, to move between cities like that. So with this, it just makes it all the easier to maneuver around. I mean, it might even be excessive. Like you, you probably wouldn't run that policy card, or maybe you would just for the lulls. But uh, you'll have so much movement that you might not feel any uh, benefit from it. So I don't think anybody really needs all that much help figuring out how the heck to use Grand Columbia. But if you do, I did uh, stay up late every night for the past week working on a strategy guide on my personal blog over at uh, www.megabearspan.net. I've also posted a link to it on Fnatics. Uh, so, you know, I invite everybody to uh, check it out and see just how dang strong Grand Columbia is. I'd just like to point out, too, that the movement to all units makes this not just a military civ, but a significant boost uh, to your economy as well with builders and such. Builders. Like you're getting a non-trivial number of things earlier in the game. Right. Uh, and so one of the other, uh, like, kind of subtle benefits is early game scouting. You're that first warrior you have at the start of the game, three movement. That first, uh, you know, if you start building scouts, four movement, right? So that means these units are moving onto rough terrain and, like, not immediately ending their turn. Uh, yeah. So you're going to have, like, priority access to, you know, tribal villages and potentially to uh, being the first to meet city-states and getting the free envoys. Uh, and then because your settlers and builders move faster, they're going to get to, you know, if, if you are racing with another sieve to get to that, like, awesome, you know, settlement location that's next to, like, a, a national wonder or natural wonder or something like that, like, your settler is probably going to get there first. Um, and then, yeah, your builders are moving and then, you know, moving on to rough terrain and then still having a movement point left to actually build the improvements, which means, like, plantation resources and stuff like that that are in jungles are that much easier to get to and improve quickly. Uh, you can chop faster because you can move on to the woods or rainforest and then chop in the same turn. Uh, yeah, like that stuff adds up. And then on top of that, there's also religious units uh, have plus one movement, which means it's a lot easier to chase down uh, Spain's uh, apostles and missionaries that they like to spam. No, you just declare one of them, but that's true. Yeah, I know that's Phil's strategy for, for dealing with everything, but uh, yeah, if, if you're using the religious units, they will also move faster. And then uh, another subtle thing is uh, spies. You can take your promotion with the spy and then still have it start its next uh, action in the same turn. So that can really help with the late game when you're trying to slow down the other civs from you know pushing towards their... Uh, you know, their own victories if you're sabotaging spaceports and stealing great works and stuff like that to slow down the other players to finish up your victory if that's, you know, something that's uh, still up in the air that late in the game. Your spies are that much uh, better. And over the course of the entire, you know, second half of the game, that's quite a... That, that probably adds up to at least one or two additional, like, full operations that each spy is engaging in over the course of the game. On playing as Grand Columbia, just a couple of points coming to mind from the discussion to date uh, so far. One of them, and Jason, you mentioned the kickers about Grand Columbia and their their unique uh, great generals. The other kicker, uh, not so uh, great as the combining them with, <clears throat> excuse me, with great generals. But the other thing about the commandant is 
you get that in, say, the classical era, and if that unit's passive ability is what you still want later in the game, that you don't want the retire ability, it doesn't matter how far you get into the game, that great general will still apply to later age units as well. Yes, which that's is... true. Unlike the regular great oh, general, the uh, wow. Commandante general's passive effect does not expire after two eras. They They work for the entire game. Which is amazing, and then you start getting them after successive era, which means that if you want to now have multiple fronts, either being on the offensive and or, quite frankly, the defensive, because at some point, if you're using Grand Columbia how it is designed, you're going to get the attention of other civs, and rightly oh, so. Oh yeah, inevitably. So, inevitably. Uh, <laughs> now, whether uh, the part- they can do anything about you or not <laughs> wow. is a different story, but... Well, and I think we're probably the answer is no, probably. But (laughs) yeah, Yeah. I mean, probably actually about to get to one of the things that I've always liked about your strategy guides, Jason, which is not just how do you play as this sieve, but how do you defend against this sieve? I mean, your humorous intro, which is essentially paraphrased, "You're screwed, too bad." Um, Yeah, good luck. I think is what I said. Was good good luck. luck, bye. Bye. Good luck, bye. Uh, The other part about what to do about Grand Columbia and nerfing it, it's already been identified about, forget about this great general stacking. Also, I cringe a little bit at that because as Phil pointed out, that was on earlier in the game and now it's been reintroduced and it's like history repeating itself a little bit. I know it's not to the same degree because it's quote unquote just with Grand Columbia, but why should it be with just anybody? But the other part, and Jason, you mentioned about maybe having it so that Grand Columbia cannot construct encampments, which means that they probably wouldn't be able to get a great general. I mean, they could take over a city from someone else that has an encampment and then quote-unquote okay. And I I guess in my mind, I was already starting to think of, no, they shouldn't do that. Why would we possibly do that? And then my brain went, well, you know, Dan and Civilization Six, the Congo, they can't build holy sites. So maybe if the, uh, the, if, the, if, the if the stacking yeah, doesn't... I think Congo can build holy sites. I think they just don't get the great profits. Yeah, they, they cannot build holy sites. Oh, okay. oh, they can't. Well, okay, pretty sure they can. No. They can take over, but then again, of course, and they can't sub- subsequently found a religion with it. So you could say that you know what, Grand Columbia, they don't need the ability to build encampments as well. And if they take them over, well, you know, quote unquote, so be it. But it may very well be that in terms of you know the nerf bat, maybe just not having the great general stacking is quote unquote enough. But I kind of like the idea of starting with that first, because that seems kind of obvious to me. And then the part about the encampment thing could be something else where people are saying, you know, proportionately, even as you compare them to other sieves that are very focused on aggression, um, then perhaps that's another way to to go about it as well. But yeah, as one for side def- effect of that, though, Dan, is that if you do take away the encampments from Grand Columbia, uh, that would also limit... Um, their bombardment capability because they wouldn't be getting the extra bombardment walls around those. Yeah. It so also I limits XP gain and the ability to build cores and armies. And yeah. I, yeah, I don't know that that's the way to go, especially think, since they are military focused SIF to, to gimp an aspect of their military that hard rather than just making their bonuses less ridiculous. It's not yeah. as attractive. Thing. I think that might be going a little too far the other direction. Hey, you brought it up. But B, they option. could still go. They could. They could go and I. You know, they could capture them and be like, "Oh, you know what? I, I I can't build them, but I still want to be able to leverage that advantage. So please go ahead and build your encampments. I want you to build your encampments so I can take them over and then I can benefit from them. That is um, an interesting quirk. His personality, uh, whatever it's called, is that he likes highly promoted units and people who build encampments. So, <laughs> yeah, if I want to remove encampments, then. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, again, like I said, I, like, a lot of these things are not, like, percentage buffs, so it's not like we can just, like, oh, make it 50% weaker. So the the Great General thing is definitely the best way to go if they are going to be nerfed. Who, maybe they won't, you know, uh, but I, I have a feeling that the community is probably going to want them to, uh, to be nerfed at some point. Um, but in addition to all that, uh, if you're not playing militarily, uh, uh, and, and in fact, like, there are also, like, viable non-military strategies with them. Uh, for example, uh, every Commandante General, like I said, has a unique retire ability. And uh, for two of them, at least, they have very good, uh, like, domestic and economic uh, retire abilities. One of them, I forget this, their names, uh, but one of them grants you an, an extra uh, trade route and a free trader unit. And another one gives you a free governor title. Uh, both of those are things where you might just be like, well, screw conquering this era. I'm just going to use those right away because those are, you know, powerful domestic advantages for you to have. Uh, and then in that case, you might, you know, if you don't already have the Commandante General sitting around, like, say, if those are the two that you get in the classical era and medieval era and you didn't bother building encampments, uh, you know, maybe you do play the first half of the game a little bit more peacefully and you just uh, build up like haciendas and stuff like that, which is their unique uh, uh, improvement which uh, gets bonus yield from adjacent pastures and also from other adjacent haciendas. And then they also, I think, buff the yield of the plantations that they are adjacent to. So that can definitely uh, be... It can be an option, but it's not something that you're going to as easily be able to plan for, because as you point out in your guide, the next Commandant General you receive is randomized each era. So if if you have to cross... Hold on, Not adjacent... Pastures, adjacent plantation. Yes, pastures is the uh, Australia. Yeah. Oh, was I saying pastures? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. I'm sorry. Plantation. Go ahead. No, no, this, no, no, no. It's, it's okay. No, you see, Jason said that because it was an embedded pop quiz, and he wanted to see if people had been paying attention to the sieve. And now that we've passed, we can continue talking about the topic. Well done, Jason. Yes, good, you, good you job. Caught it. Was, good job, Canis. Wait, do I, I not get something for pointing it out? Wow. I did no, that's, Wow. Anyway, uh, <laughs> with the Commandant Generals, because they're randomized, it's it's kind of one of those things where if you stumble upon it, then yes, that can be fantastic. Plus, it's kind of the, well, this is unique to this. I could really use that. I, I think the trader unit in particular, especially if it's earlier on in the game. But quite frankly, it can be, you know what? I, I, don't, want, I don't want that particular trader right now. I want to be able to use that uh, for military purposes. And then you get the next Commandant General, which gives you the same passive ability, and oh, I'm going to go ahead and retire that, which you also point out in your guide. So, the fact that it, it's so good in terms of you know, Grand Columbia is so good in, and in terms of being able to expand aggressively, I, I think you, right now, the biggest, one of the biggest um, stop gaps for Grand Columbia, as playing Grand Columbia in particular, is if you own either of the expansion packs, a little thing called loyalty, because it is possible that Grand Columbia could be going a little too quickly, but that is certainly not a, oh, well, Dan, because of loyalty, you don't have to worry about Grand Columbia being you know too overpowered. No, particularly when it's so early on, and loyalty is not the issue that it gets to be a little later on, right? As populations grow, when people start spamming out, it's not going to be a problem. Oh, I'm sorry, is that city going to revolt in the next, I don't know, seven, eight turns? You know, you're playing on quick speed. That's okay. I'm going to have no problem taking the next adjacent city before then, and then loyalty is not a problem. (laughs) You You go so fast through the cities in Grand Columbia that the loyalty is not a problem. That's how late game is anyway. It's the early game where loyalty is pressure. But even earlier on, if you've got the right, <clears throat> one of their great generals, 
combined with a good army, you can still go pretty fast, even if it's not cavalry fast. Oh, for sure. All of your units are going to be moving as if they were cavalry, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Scoot and uh, shoot across well, Especially with great general stacking right now. <laughs> right. Uh, and then another thing that you might want to do is if you are getting both the regular great generals and the commandante generals at the same time, I mean, maybe you decide you don't need both. Maybe both are overkill, so that also potentially frees you up to... Uh, use the retireability of one or the other. Uh, for example, I had a game where I did build an early encampment, and I got Sun Tzu, and I was just like, well, I don't really need him for the combat bonus, because I already conquered my immediate neighbor, and like the next one is kind of far away, so I'm probably not going to get there uh, before I get you know my next Commandante General. So I just retired him for the great work of writing, and just you know started collecting the two free culture and tourism every turn. Where in that case, Sun Tzu was so inspired by your Commandant General, he became a general himself, and then he decided to retire and paint the Art of War because he learned the Art of War from the Commandant General. See, that yeah, all right. works War just beautifully. It doesn't matter. In this interpretation, he, he's not... He, it's just the like Art of War. History. I have nope. right here in my hand a copy of the Art of War. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not contesting that it's a book. I'm just saying in this interpretation, he actually... It, it's, an, it's an actual art... Quote-unquote artwork. It's visual art. He decides to paint visual art. In this How instance. ironic that book happens to be sitting on the desk moment. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, and, uh, gosh, I don't think we even talked about, like, Grand Columbia's, like, actual unique combat unit yet. Surround and uh, pound. <laughs> which is a, uh, a cavalry replacement, uh, called the Yanero. The Yanero uh, surround and pound. Yeah, which, uh, what you do gets, with it. um, well, actually, not quite, because the bonus of the Yanero is that the Yanero gets a combat bonus for each other Yanero that is adjacent to it, not necessarily to the enemy. So you actually want to surround the Yanero that's attacking first. I didn't then... say who was getting surrounded before you pound. That, that, I guess that, that is true. Uh, but one of the advantages to this as well is that it means that if, when your, uh, Yanero start taking damage, you can back them up to behind your frontline Yanero, and those frontline Yanero still get the combat bonus for having adjacent ones behind them, which are hopefully now safely out of range of being attacked by the enemy. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's another uh, cool way to use them. And then they also, like, insta-heal when a general uses its retire ability near them. Uh, so, again, just more piling on of these combat abilities. And because like it's yeah. It's a late game unit, so it has the, that downside. But this is a late game unit that seems pretty meaningful. Because if you're getting four or five of these things near the others, and that's, that's also a lot the, of combat strength. And that's also at the point in the game where, like, ideally you should have been spamming your light cavalry units like yes, earlier in the game in preparation absolutely. for getting these. Which means you probably have enough of them to group them together into cores and armies. And now if you've got three, four, or five cores or armies of Yanero, I mean, that's even way more uh, powerful. Particularly if they started off as horsemen or even coursers later on and then get all of that experience and then yeah. just, wow. I mean, honestly, horsemen to coursers, thank you, Gathering Storm, and then to cavalry is something that I feel even I underappreciated when the Gathering Storm first came out and maybe just even Civ Six in general, quite honestly. And I, I blame you, Civ Five. I, I, I blame you. Um, but now it's just kind of, oh my gosh, all the more reason to have horsemen, which could also mean that if you find Grand Columbia, if you're playing against them, not that this stops them from using other, you know, military units and units of strategic resources against you, but do, do deny them horses wherever possible. 
And maybe you actually build a couple spearmen and pikemen. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. Because if these things stack up together, you can kill uh, mech infantry with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You throw on the fascism bonus and uh, the general bonus and, like, five adjacency bonus for this. And you're over a hundred strength. I usually, I usually like to have a handful of anti-cav units like in my territory, like camped on my strategic uh, resource improvements, just so that it's that much harder for enemy cavalry to run into my borders and pillage those things and then run away. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if if four or five Gennaro show up, like your anti-tank unit is not gonna <laughs> is not gonna scare them away. Plus, like, these guys still get the bonus from the regular Surround and Pound, right? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah, so you're still getting like flanking they... bonus and support bonuses as well, which is only plus two, I think, as compared to their adjacency bonus to each other, which I think is plus four each. Well, wait, that doesn't replace? I don't in think that case? It, I don't think it replaces it. I think it's plus six so... is, like, plus six is ridiculous. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it stacks. So if you have a two Gennaro oh adjacent <laughs> to an enemy unit and to each other, you have the plus two flanking bonus and the plus four uh, bonus from the Gennaro. And if you have a third one that's adjacent to it, then you've got, I think, plus four oh total flanking and plus <laughs> eight. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you get the light cavalry unit and they can double for they can be promoted to the double envelopment for each unit itself having twice the flanking bonus. Which uh, of course, true, if right. you I like cavalry, yeah, so that's they can, true. They can that's right. So it's even bonus. It's even more. It's even more delicious. Like you, you're going to be able to one shot stuff with this until the end of the game if you micro it uh-huh. properly. Yeah. So like I know, okay. Jason. You, yeah. You like you pointed out in your article about you know when you upgrade chariots to knights, they will also become devastating quick strike weapons. Yeah, they can. But I think you are. I think you're better off. I mean, if you don't have horse, well, I'm. Oh, that that kind of sucks, obviously. But if you do, oh my gosh, you're so much better off going the horseman path for this. And that's even before right. the fact that their unique unit is a cavalry replacement. But I was talking in in that case more in line of like you know the knights versus the coursers. If you wanted that tankier unit you know, going in because you're worried about getting bombarded by, like, two or three, you know, cities and encampments while you're in there, then, you know, I, I was just pointing that out as a, as an option, because your you know, knight's going to have, like, what, six, seven movement as well. Yeah, and a knight does have a greater combat strength, base combat strength, than a uh, courser. And it so also there is has that. the uh, promotion available as a heavy cav unit that uh, reduces uh, ranged uh, damage, which I think yeah. also applies to city bombardment, but I'm not entirely... <laughs> Play against Grand Columbia. Restart your game. No, no. neighbor. <laughs> nope. Restart. Grand Columbia is a close neighbor. Not so bad unless you let them get their their uh, Commandante General. Otherwise, yeah. you just kill them. Right. Because in the very early game, their movement bonus is less useful because they have to go through all that rough terrain that hasn't been improved yet. True. It's Which a lot is kind of to defend yourself from them that early in the game, and then you know hopefully lash out with a counter offensive. They're they're one of those civs where if you see them as your immediate neighbor, you know, kind of like uh, the Aztec or uh, Macedon, you probably want to just take them out like right away so that they don't become a problem later because they I will was, become a problem. I was gonna say if Grand Columbia is your neighbor at the beginning of the game and they still exist by the Renaissance, you have done something horribly wrong and you will pay for. I don't now, know. Like the way I play, this guy would probably love me. So 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it could. I, I could also see a case for, you know, you maybe ally with them. You know, if, if for whatever reason they're sending you a delegation early in the game and you send them a delegation, they've got the green diplomatic modifier and they're willing to be friends. I mean, they, they could be an awesome, like, military ally. It just is going to depend on what victory you're going to go for. Because if you're going to go for a domination victory, you're going to have to fight them sooner or later. Sure, and but this, who cares that well, there's a betrayal emergency when there's only two nations left on the board? <laughs> Very true. It's all, you just I have like to make the, sure that your military is powerful enough that you can actually deal with wow. them at that point in the game when you do decide it's time to deal with them. Yes, we're talking that, single player, there's no question. If you've actually defeated the other AI, <laughs> there's no way there's in single only, player that you would not be able to turn around and beat him. Like, that's ridiculous. There's You're only the Civ 4 special. <laughs> that's true. Just carpeting every single city he has. It's kind of what you, we want to use his agenda against him. Like was pointed out, he likes civilizations with highly promoted units. You do not want him to go out and gobble up civs. So if you go out and gobble up civs instead, then, oh, I really like you. Yes, I know, because I've got this military success against these other people, right? And I'm containing you at the same time. But you're okay with that because I'm taking out other civs. i got lots of highly promoted units. He's going to like you. And then it's like, hey, yeah, let's go after these people together. Yeah, sure. But as long as you can contain them and then be like, so all those other civs I, I took over while you were happy with me uh, by taking them over, now I'm going to turn my attention against you. Another uh, nuance uh, that I noticed with him, and I, I don't know for sure if this is the way that it works, but I think the way that his um, leader agenda uh, works is that I think he compares the like average promotion level of his units against the average promotion level of your units. Because one of the things that I was afraid of was that he was going to turn out to be like the Congo, where like as soon as you meet them, you know, they complain that you haven't spread your religion in their cities yet. <laughs> I, I, I was worried that as soon as I met Simon Bolivar, he was going to be like, why don't you have any promoted units yet? And it's like, because it's turn six. <laughs> um, and I but, haven't found you to beat up yet, but now that I have, no, I'll get right on that. Yeah, but I haven't seen that happen yet. So I, I think it's based on like comparing your promotion levels of units uh, against his. Which means that uh, he's one of he might be one of those funny like sieves where actually like fighting him or acting aggressive towards him might actually make him friendly towards you because one of the things that could happen is you go to war with him you kill all his highly promoted units which then promotes your units and then when the war ends assuming that you didn't like capture a bunch of his cities and build up a bunch of grievances if it's like a little border skirmish now suddenly you have promoted units he doesn't. Maybe now all of a sudden he wants to be your friend. So you've neutralized him uh, as a military threat, at least for the time being. And now you potentially got a friend, ally, and trade partner out of it. So that's also one way to potentially play against him. Mm. Simon and Grand Columbia. Yeah. Simon and Grand Columbia are a more extreme version of I like you more because you're going after people and possibly myself than even Alexander of Macedon. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, like the Norway leader who likes uh, you having that big fleet and like it shows up you know, like right outside of his uh, capital city. And he's like, wow, that's an awesome fleet you've got there. Hey, you want to be friends? And it's like, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think I have other things I want to do with that massive fleet. Whereas Grand Columbia is like, you know, it's not just about the size of your fleet or your army, but it's also how you use them. Nah. You know, have you actually proven your battle? Have you proven your worth in battle? That's great. You've got this huge army, but are they highly promoted? Hmm. Is your army full of scrubs or not? Exactly. So, have we beaten the overpoweredness of Grand Columbia into the ground yet? Do you want to uh, move on to talking about other first impressions on the New Frontiers? Con sure. Yeah, uh, 
Yeah, just uh, yeah. First impressions. Uh, well, we I think we've kind of already embedded part of that. Uh, and talking about Grand Columbia here, I mean, we kind of embedded a first look Grand Columbia plus playing as Grand Columbia. Whereas on the last episode, all we could do was the first look conversation about the Maya. And uh, I personally feel like so far my contribution to the Maya discussion on Polycast was actually achieved on the last episode with reference to the Lady Six Sky After Dark animations. You're welcome, Mr. Radar on Civ Fanatics. I hope you had pleasant dreams. Um, but it's just kind of like Grand Columbia just fits the kind of player that I am so much. It's just I, you know, I see the Mayans in the game. I've played against the Mayans and I've I've enjoyed fighting them. Um, sometimes as Grand Columbia and sometimes not. But yes, it is nice to have another civilization in the game that is substantially different from the other Civ that gives you a chance to flex some of your other Civ 6 gameplay muscles. And we know, and Mackie's already mentioned, playing as uh, Lady Six Sky. So um, what do the stars hold? Anyway. It's nice to have a Civ where you can sit there and build. You know, and you, you have sort of a program in your head. I want to get these cities out and I want to do this thing. It's odd because I'm so used to going and claiming a bunch of the map, but then I turn around and this one is like, actually, I need to not do that. This is, it's, Maya are very good if you wanted to sit there and do a, a more buildery type game and try and go for like the, uh, the map gives you the room to, to do that. Yeah. I have actually started two games as Maya, uh, and in both of those games, uh, and mostly just so that I could play against Grand Colombian, uh, but you know, and try them out at the same time. And in both of those games, I started off with one back against the coast and then massive mountain ranges on the other side of me. And I was only able to, I only had enough room for like three cities uh, that would fit in within that six tile range, which really sucked. Yeah, I got lucky in the multiplayer game last week that I had enough room to do it. And also it gave me more incentive to go up against fresh borders, whereas in a normal game, I might have tried to settle further north and let them come up. But <clears throat> yeah, yeah, you got you to make sure the map lets you play them out as well and hope you don't get boxed in against a coast or mountains but, yeah or mountains mountains is less likely i don't do pangea as much now there's a related question to starting as the maya do they have a certain disposition for starting location because we know grand columbia doesn't and why would they need that i think maya's rainforest and river but i'm not or uh no it's um i think they have a resources. Yeah, they have the ma major one for plantation resources and a minor one for rainforest or the other way around. I found it on the forum somewhere. Someone looked it up in the... Uh, yeah, the they pulled out sample. the actual code. Yeah, I have noticed in multiple starts having gotten rainforest almost every time it's, and having a decent amount of resources. Sometimes you don't. That's the one thing that, that was the one thing will really get you if you don't have the luxuries nearby they're not quite as powerful. But if you can get, you don't have to get all the cities within the six tile radius next to luxuries, but if you get most of them in that bonus in production and everything just kind of snowballs, and especially if you've got a nice rivery area that you can just spread out and do a lot of farming in, and that makes the uh, observatories even more powerful. So you're getting like ridiculous amounts of science off much smaller amount of city. I mean, the number of times I saw my science after about, the first 50 turns just like take off like a rocket and I'm sitting here I'm making like twice what they are what it's like even in our multiplayer game last week I could keep up with Grimm in science and I'm like something's not right yeah there was a uh, one of my favorite uh, responses or reactions to the Maya so far was uh, a post I read on Civ Fanatics and I, I forgot uh, who posted it but uh, 
Uh, what he said was, the way to play the Maya is to capture your, quote, area as fast as you can, any way you can. Anyone else inside your area, AI, city-state, grandma, <laughs> anyone, they burn. So my reaction to that is like, oh yeah, sorry, grandma, I really love you, but I do not love you more than that point two extra production per turn that I'm going to get when I found a city where your corpse was standing. Jason has things against grandmas. Okay. I'm just, I'm just making notes. Okay. Only if grandma is within the radius when he's trying to play the Maya. Otherwise, grandmas, we're cool with grandma. Oh, yeah. If grandma is seven tiles away, she's fine. But if she yeah. steps into that sixth tile, then it's, yeah, torches and pitchfork. So how long until we start forward settling people with our capital and then attacking them with the unique unit archers within the sphere of the capital, which is also near the enemy capital? that you just have, like, ridiculous brain strength almost immediately. I mean, would that be worth the time it would take? To no, but it's a cancer before? move, so it's fun. Oh, okay, well. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say, that sounds like an absolute troll move in multiplayer. If but it's, um, if, if the map is crowded, though, you could make a case for it, but only if you, like, know uh, where, about where other people start. Montezuma like, you could approved. probably abuse this on a small TSL or something. <laughs> this strategy is Montezuma approved. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, they still get the minus 17 strength that all archers get, but if you're getting the the plus 5 uh, strength and another plus, you know, like a couple from your unique unit, just being your unique unit, uh, that would still be a substantially stronger attack even on cities than it would uh, you would normally get from archers. Yeah, I have to say I had not considered that possibility, uh, but uh, I suppose, yeah, that is... Uh, another thing, too, is if you go into advanced settings and just add a bunch of extra civs or AIs to the game or city-states, the map will be more crowded and you will be much more likely to be able to use that um, that bonus against city-states and or other civs early. Yeah, and then you won't have to move to do it, so it's less of a, a pure cancer choice. Right, you can still found your city on the first turn or two and, uh, you know, still get that. But yeah, this, this is another civ that can easily go into conquest. I mean, it's not built for the way the Grand Columbia is, but nothing wrong yeah, and, with good early game people, unit. As people on the forums have said, like, a minus 15% penalty to yield for those cities that are outside of uh, six from your capital, like, isn't huge. I mean, it's not like it's a 50%, you know, penalty or, or something crazy like that. Like, it's, it's manageable. I think someone on the forum said, like, if you're getting 20 of something, like, it means you're going to get 17 instead. Uh, yeah. So, like, I and mean, that's not upscaling either. Like it's always just going to be fifteen percent, so it's not a big yeah, deal. Yeah, it's not like it's something where it gets worse the more cities you found. You know, like no, the, no. I mean, especially early on in the game, minus fifteen percent. Okay, so in some cases, early on, that's like a fraction, like big whoop. Yeah, right. and late if it was an game, absolute I mean, value, then we'd have a conversation about, oh my gosh, are they ever going to be able to get to the point where it's not a big deal? But because it's a percentage, mm, negligible, right? And, I mean, like, you can make up for a lot of that uh, by just, you know, doing a really good job of specializing your cities. So those first six, or those first few cities, you're going to want to cram in as close as possible. But then after that, like, I think it just becomes a little bit more important to try to find places that are going to get you some really good adjacency bonuses for uh, whatever districts you want to specialize in for that city. <clears throat> just to make sure that you're getting a high enough yield where that, you know, minus 15% isn't uh, making the city completely unproductive. But then again, the downside is that the more, you know, specialized and productive your city is, the more of a difference that 15% is going to make, because it is a percentage. And then I suppose also, if we're talking about the first DLC, new, uh, when I should say DLC, let me be more specific, obviously, the first new Frontiers Pass, 
DLC. As we talked about on the last episode, there was also this thing called the new Apocalypse game mode, which I I I, I kind of wrote it off for myself just as out of just really not interested. But if someone oh, has been playing it with it, then I mean, this sounds as I said, this sounds like a perfect game to play as the Maya. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed playing. <laughs> Uh, although I do want to say, but I'm then so Canis has played it and sound like Mackie has as well. Maybe Jason and Phil, you know, third and fourth. But I will say that on the last episode, I distinctly remember when we were talking about meteor showers, which are not just specific to the game mode, that there was a speculation from the screenshot analysis thread that it was, hey, look at that, a new resource, a new iron resource. Well, no, that, but that was, you know. It's very keen on looking at the visual of the meteor shower. No, you're just most likely going to end up with a heavy chariot from it. Yeah, I think the screenshot, it just happened to hit a tile that already had iron underneath it. It was just, it was entertaining. Anyway, yes, Apocalypse game mode. I mean, this, I'm taking it to those who have played it. This is not something that you're like, oh, I want to play this every single time now. This is my new, this is my new favorite mode. It's just something that gives you a little bit of a different, a challenge based on a little bit of a different, of a premise to play now and again. As a yes. brief aside, I, I did see uh, Spiffing Brit uh, put up a video <laughs> of about using the soothsayers and the great bath to get his floodplain tiles to something like plus 45 faith like without actually having to use like actual cheats or exploits that I sounds mean, amazing yeah you have to it takes it does take some time to set it up but yeah it gets a little ridiculous and he also well, pointed out that the AI isn't like clever enough to like notice that you're using soothsayers against them as long as you put the soothsayer yeah. outside of their borders so you just find that one tile right outside their borders that's on the river and then trigger the flood and it floods all down the river into the AI territory and the AI won't recognize that you did it or get mad at you at all. So there's that as well. Okay, so you said it takes a little bit to set up. Is it is it worth doing that as compared to other things you could be doing with your turns or is it more just for the lulls? Well, I think the soothsayer costs faith to buy similar to a religious unit. So if you have tiles that are generating 45 faith per turn, then <laughs> yeah, you can spamming the soothsayers and then, yeah, like sending them out to the other players and sicking volcanoes and meteorites on them. Okay, yes. both. All right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yes. <laughs> so the answer is yes. True. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> basically, yes. It's for the lulls, and it's fun. A logical evaluation returns true. All right, anything else on the New Frontiers Pass? Yeah, there was uh, there there was also talk of alternate skins for a couple leaders. I don't think those are available yet, right? No. Okay. Not just no, alternate no. skins, alternate ability. Correct. Yeah, uh, yes. alternate versions of a couple existing leaders. Yes. Okay, but those were not included in this pack, so I guess we don't need to talk about them. No, I, we, we alluded to them on the last episode, but I think, yeah. you know, w whatever next DLC that's coming out, then of course the next one is in July, but then we're supposed to be getting some freebie stuff in between, right? So there'll still be something for right. you guys to talk about in June. Mackie? I just had to make a reference to that. I just, I, I wanted that <laughs> opportunity. Mackie knows exactly what I'm talking about. And anyone who's listened to this show for any considerable extended period of time also knows what <laughs> I'm referencing there. <laughs> well, I don't know. It could still happen if they don't keep up the pace. You never know. <laughs> oh, it'll just be their stuff to talk about. We just don't want to talk about it. Oh, that's a completely different story. <laughs> yeah, the only other thing that I can think of that's uh, new in this is the. There's also the forest fire. Uh, uh, yeah, disaster. it's just a, yeah, it's just a random disaster that happens if you have them on, and it's just a few tiles, and it regrows. It's not like a permanent damage to the map. 
Yeah, but it is something that is also in the the vanilla or the base game, not just Mm -hmm. in Apocalypse. Yeah, it's just kind of yeah. If you're used to volcanic eruptions, then the forest fire really isn't that different. Yeah, I I have yet to have like a city or district or anything burned down. So far, all the forest fires that I've seen have been way the heck out in the middle of nowhere. So so far for me, it has been like a non-issue. Uh, I, does it make the tile more fertile or anything like that after it, it ends and regrows? How does it interact with lumber mills? It destroys the lumber mills. Okay. That's really not a good change unless they substantially nerf chopping or substantially buff lumber mills because the cost proposition of that has favored chopping for basically the entirety of Civ 6's existence unless you are literally the nation that cannot chop. Especially since they actually removed the bonus production for lumber mills from being adjacent to rivers, which I don't know why they, they did that. That seemed like an unnecessary nerf. It, 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 just, it makes no sense to me. Like it, It's not a secret that chopping is widely considered much better, and they, they further nerf... My gosh. I, the other thing that it does it. is it does definitely increase the the, um, the tile yields after the fire, after the forest grows back. Okay, so it does do that. Yes. Like I said, I haven't had any some benefit too, but geez, I don't know. The best part of having at least one forest tile around is to prevent droughts. Like, the improvement of your yield is going to have to be offset by the cost of the builder turn uh, to repair it. Like, (laughs) or the builder time, I should say. It doesn't, like, destroy the lumber mill, like... Well, yeah, you have to repair it, but, like... No, you don't repair it, you have to rebuild it. Yeah, I kind of said it destroyed it, so... Yeah, uh, it doesn't, like, Then that's a real hammer cost, not just the time cost. It does not pillage it, it destroys it out. Yeah. (laughs) What the heck? That's nonsense. Yeah, I don't know. Any criticism I was about to take back, I do not take back. That is, what the heck are they thinking with that? I imagine that will be patched. Or at the very least, maybe have, like, tiers of fires where, like, you can have a mild fire that just pillages the district and then a severe fire that maybe destroys it. Because they've got that going with all the other disasters, where as the game progresses, they get more intense. There needs to be something that makes the cost proposition of a lumber mill not a false choice. And pushing it in the opposite direction is not the way to go about that. Well, I've always kind of seen that the disasters, like, in and of themselves, were kind of an attempt to make chopping less uh, optimal. Because once you've chopped it, you can't chop it again. Same thing with harvesting. So if a disaster comes and kills population or destroys infrastructure you don't get that yield back. And now you just have a tile for the rest of the game that's got lower yield. I think you're chopping for production, and you're chopping for production right now, which gives you value that it's difficult for the the value of leaving the the forest in place to compete with from a net present value standpoint for the rest of the game, even without the disaster that can destroy your lumber mill and add to the cost of carrying the lumber mill. Right. And my experience has been that even when districts get pillaged by disasters, like for some reason, it seems to not take as long to repair them as if they got pillaged by enemy units. Like for some reason, repairing a district after disaster like seems to only take like one or two turns for me, as opposed to like it being hit by a military unit where it you know sometimes takes 10, 20, 30 turns to repair it. So I'm not I'm not sure if there's a different mechanic there or if it's just like a uh you know, false observation on my point. Is this, are other people seeing similar uh, results? I, I think the rest of you don't even play with disasters on, so you probably don't even see them. Well, disaster intensity is zero, but disasters are still on. 
but I don't. Yeah. I haven't seen the extent to which you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah I just, like I just leave it on default, which is two. So it's just there's an occasional thing and an occasional flood, and it's you know. I used to play with them as uh, three, but the first two games that I started with this new expansion pack, I don't know if they changed the like logic for spawning disasters or what. But like the first two games I played, like I felt like every like other turn, the same river was flooding and the same volcano was going off, and it just repeatedly was destroying my stuff. So I, I started playing now with it at uh, two. I don't know if that was just a really unlucky game or if they actually no. changed the frequency. I kind of feel sometimes almost like it picks a favorite river to flood, because I see that in multiplayer. Like, the same river will flood, like, three or four times in the game, even when disaster flow. Or just that particular river has the potential more than other ones. I, I'm i not quite sure how that works under there. We don't, we don't see the full map, so we don't know how the, the percentages work. I don't know if anybody has actually done a full map game long study of natural disasters in Civ. That would be an interesting thing for somebody on the forum to do. Hint, hint, forum topic people. Yes, Victoria, <laughs> get on it. <laughs> Man. <laughs> at least read the workload a little bit. Come on now. I was going to say, anybody can do it. There's plenty of people there who've been there for years who can do it, too. Wow. Did you hear that, Victoria? Mega Bears fan just called you up. No? He gave you homework. He gave you homework. Wow. Victoria challenges Mega Bears fan to a 1v1 game, and the loser has to do it. Oh, well, in that case, I better just get started. <laughs> <laughs> so Victoria conclusion. has a much firmer grasp on the game than, uh, than <sighs> I do, and probably plays more multiplayer than I do as well. So, yeah, I don't uh, think I would win either. <laughs> I think I would lose pretty soundly. Well... As I hear more about the Apocalypse game mode, I, I've, I've reached a conclusion. It just sounds like the disaster mode for Maxis SimCity from the 90s, only worse. So, well, well, all the more power to you. It's fun, but you don't want to do it as your main method of play. Would you? Re- <laughs> I already know the answer to this. At least I think I do, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Would you recommend this mode for new players? No. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> you, well, you might recommend it for someone you don't want playing the game. I want to hear you talking. I don't want you asking me for help. Oh, hey, why don't you try the apocalypse mode? Oh, what do you mean I you uninstalled it and asked for a refund? I have cousins <laughs> who played this game, and not one of them has ever asked for help. Oh, I don't know whether to be to be impressed by their diligence or insulted by their lack of awareness of my uh, my quote unquote limited limited. Lim- do you know what? I give up. Next topic. Oh, I was about let's to say, I think about, I actually... Let's talk about uh, the City States, the new one. Wait, you know, I thought you had a little uh, interlude you wanted to uh, talk about there, Canis, which I thought, you know, lack of intelligence was a good segue to that. Oh, yeah. Um, it's over <laughs> now, but Epic Game Store gave away Civ Five or Civ Six for free for like a week. And uh, if you uh, made advantage of that sale, I say you have taken food out of the mouths of the developers who made this game. And you should be ashamed of yourselves for using a Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese propaganda machine that steals all your data. So uh, just for clarification, you get the game for free permanently or it was like a free week to play the game? Because Steam does mm. that too, where you play it for free for a weekend and then you have to pay for it. You get it permanently. Oh, I they give away that. games a lot. But it's but even if they were giving away. Uh, Train Simulator 2020 with every piece of DLC ever released, which for those of you who know about this, it's like 
more than $10,000 worth of DLC or something, it's still not worth it to have that Chinese spyware on your computer. Yeah, it's free for the cost of all your data. So uh, free, asterisk. Asterisk, yeah. there's always an asterisk. All your data and also the cost of your dignity. Yeah, I, I, my objections to the Epic Game Store are more along the lines of the way that they bully people into uh, exclusives. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the oh. fact that it's potential Chinese spyware is just like kind of icing on the cake for me. I, I'm still debating whether or not like I want to play Old World enough to use the Epic Game Store maybe on one of my computers, but I've, um, I've held out already for Outer Wilds and Outer Worlds to come out on Steam, and finally Outer Wilds I think is due out like next month in a few weeks, so I'll finally be able to play that on Steam. Because uh, I, I want to also wanted to avoid the console versions because I've you know played enough like Bethesda RPGs on consoles to know that that's a losing proposition. Um, the but, good news is, if you want to play a game that's available exclusively to the Epic Store, Tim Sweeney, who is the CEO of Epic Games, has given you free license to pirate any game that is light, that is specifically exclusive to the Epic Store because he has said, quote, we bought it so you don't have to. Well, that's very generous of him. Yep, that's why I don't feel any guilt for anything I do about an Epic Store. Besides, I'd much rather wait and spend my money on Steam so I can support, you know not giving my money to Chinese people. And I'm sure that if they took it for I wonder how well the but he told me to defense would uh <laughs> if you're listening to me for legal advice, I got some bad news. Yeah. <laughs> I would not listen to this show for legal advice from any of us. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but I think that that's still good advice is to not take our legal advice. And sometimes even our civ advice is not entirely on point, let alone our legal advice. At least we're closer. We are certainly closer in civ advice than we are in legal advice. Yeah, the the objections to Epic Games is not because they are from China, but because of the practices. They're blatantly anti-consumer too, and that's why I avoided them. I didn't. I wasn't even paying attention to the China bullcrap, but it doesn't matter because they're blatantly anti-consumer, and that's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah I don't think anybody on this panel is a fan of that. Only exclusive for like six months or a year. I mean, on one hand, the devs need the money to keep funding, but on the other hand, uh, <laughs> that's uh, all those uh, those Kickstarters and crowdfunding projects that were supposed to be on multiple platforms uh, and then became exclusives, the and then you know that was just a lot of bad PR and, and bad faith for the poor developers because it's, it's a, a lose lose. You know, as we what said about- in the last few episodes, a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, yeah, they get the money now. Thank you, Jason. To keep their business afloat. But, you know, at the cost of potentially losing, you know, some good faith among uh, fans in your community can be... Losing your soul and, yeah, you know... Damning. Uh, but, like, we won't mention by name the company that decided to, instead of saying, hey, we're going to Steam, we're going to Epic so we can actually finish our game decided to preemptively declare war on their Steam users by calling them all entitled baby brats and call and basically insulting them to the point where they were like, you know what, screw off. Yeah, I'm not going really to tell them. you who that was because they don't deserve the credit. Well, now that we've told you how we really feel about Epic Game Store. Oh, no, I haven't really told you how I feel about Epic Game Store, but the, I am bound by the restrictions of civility. <laughs> but... There are certain things that I would like to do to the Epic Game Store that uh, medieval torturers would consider too group. Translation, be sure to find Canis's uh, dark fan fiction somewhere else on the internet. It's All not right. fiction and it's not a fan. <laughs> it's not a fan is the thing. Did you not hear the giant air quotes? Okay, I guess I, I didn't emphasize the giant no, air quotes. Sorry. Jason, help, help me with the giant air quotes. Help me left these, these up here. 
Why you? Because, uh, well, you've got the least seniority still on this show. So here, help me. I'm sorry, what, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> no, you, you did it with your confusion. Thank you. Now for less confusion. Perform talk. There we go. to get back to the uh, base air quote game, because I mean, that's with Gathering Storm and everything. Uh, error mechanics. This was started by a clue without over on the Cyphonetics forums asking, how do people feel about the error mechanics? They, they can't work out if they like them or not. You know, uh, they point out that a well-placed golden age, or even, you know, also, even, I'll add, even a heroic age, and the right medication can really get things going in a game. But sometimes, and I see this more in the multiplayer, get into the Dark Age, you're getting your army together, you got everything lined up, and then boom, Dark Age. And then you're you were about to go tax somebody. It's like, well, that's not going to happen now. And then by the time you get out of the Dark Age, all your units are out of date. Great. You know. But it, uh, sometimes, I don't know if... I'm, I'm, like, I'm in the same boat with them, is that sometimes I'm not sure if this is a, uh, too, too influencing on the game, I guess. It can make a good game go bad or a bad game go worse. Very rarely do we get the combination of good-good. It's also, I think, applied unevenly. Because if you are a militaristic Civ that's looking to conquest or to conquer, I think you're much more punished by a Dark Age than other Civ. You're turtling and, like, building stuff and, you know, doing great works and stuff. Like, like a Dark Age is, is pretty much nothing, right? Because you're not losing loyalty in your cities already anyway. It's only if you're expanding aggressively or conquering cities that that penalty and loyalty really means anything. Even then, it's manageable later on. The The time where the Dark Age loyalty stuff really hurts is if you're doing like a classical rush. And that's also the only time I really have a problem with it. Because sometimes it's just not practical to get sufficient uh, error score like right at the start of the game. Especially if you're like playing with barbarians off, that like completely breaks it. But like barbarians can also break the game, so like you're kind of in a catch twenty two there. And having a dark age at that point can be really damning. Whereas later on, it's not as significant. And if you get like a dark age in like industrial or something, and you're conquering, like just conquer faster. It's not a big deal by then. But that's uh, that's pretty far into the game too. Yeah, if you have barbarians and especially uh, tribal villages turned off, like good luck getting. Ancient or classical or uh, medieval or classical or medieval uh, golden age. Uh, you, I don't normal. even need a golden age. I just need a not dark age. Not, well, yeah, yeah, that too, and especially if you're on a higher difficulty where it's also impractical to go for most of the wonders in the game, which are probably going to be the biggest source of era score at that point. If you don't have barbarians and villages, yeah, you're, you're not building those if you're going for a classical rush. <laughs> anyway. Right. Well, and if you're on a harder difficulty, you're probably not going for them anyway, because the AIs get so many bonuses towards, you know, production that it's it's a grave risk of, you know, you know, lost lots of lost opportunity cost uh, yeah. if you try going for a wonder and you don't. Yeah, it's a bad value proposition all around. Uh, yeah, I disagree a... with the notion that a clue without rights that there should be a downside to a golden age. That's kind of the point of a golden age is that upside. And it's something you really have to work to achieve, right? Like you don't. 
Yeah. If you don't want a golden age, don't get a golden age. Well, and yeah. the downside and is that your the era score requirements for not yes. getting a dark age is now next more time. expensive for the next era. So the downside yes. of the golden age is it is now harder to not get a dark age the following. Yeah, it's kind of like congratulations, you got an A plus on this assignment. Are you going to be able to continue that on the next assignment? Are you going to be able to maintain that? That is your yeah. challenge. Yes, you got a ninety nine percent on this assignment, which means that in order to get an A on the next assignment, you need a hundred and ten percent. <laughs> quite, quite literally, I and mean, then sometimes you're sitting there where you might get into just a good run of things where you're producing, hitting so many uh, great works or wonders and things like that, and like, wait, I have to stop doing good things because I'm going to overshoot a golden age by so much that it's going to just make it even worse next time. Yeah, there's sometimes where you just yeah. can't avoid that because you have the era where like all your uniques come online and like yeah. all the all the wonders that you were working on like come through at this all you know, finish. Time. It's like oh crap. And maybe you go through a period of expansion where you're settling in like floodplains and deserts and stuff like that, or another continent, and you're and it's like I'm not going to not do these things, you know. Well, there have been some instances where I know I can now get my unique unit, but because I would be oh my gosh, I'm already overshooting the minimum requirement for a golden age. I'm actually not going to construct it this era. You know, I might start building it and then maybe leave a turn or two, but I'll probably have something else to do. And I'll yeah. leave it so that I don't overshoot it, which is kind of, is that really a consideration we want to be having when you're deciding whether or not to build a unique unit? But, but I, mean, I, I, really, I really only do that, though, if like the countdown to the next era has already started, right? Like if, if yeah. it's still giving me the, you know, next era is 12 to 30 turns. <laughs> I know, right? Like, well, I, I should probably go ahead and, and build that unique unit. But if it's, you know, if I've already got the countdown and it's like next era is in six turns, you know, and I don't need that unique unit right away, then yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and delay it until it, but... Uh, Outside of that uh, time frame, it's like, no, are you kidding? And the Dark Age stuff, I mean, if you're in a Dark Age and Mackie used the situation in multiplayer and you're getting ready to go and attack somebody and it's like, well, I hope you weren't looking to attack and keep those cities. If you're willing to take them and burn them, as it's affectionately referred to in the Turncast multiplayer games as making a bunch of Danmarks, then... <laughs> That's the that's okay. Although it does end up leaving, and I said this when loyalty was introduced. There's lots of swaths of the map that you know. I also always found it entertaining. Actually, the first time it happened in Civ Six, I was like, "Wait, what?" Not only did I just raise the city, but absolutely everything that they improved is also gone completely. I'm not saying you should all stay, but it's just like, oh, it's all gone. It's like, There's so what happened? On fire, so you have to repair it. I mean, yeah. it's like, what ruins, happened here? Yeah, Dan happened here. Wonders should be ruined. <laughs> Yeah, I'd go with that one. Yeah, you have a ruined version of the one that you can't repair or something. Or yeah. or you can repair even. Oh, yeah. that That is one of my favorite features from Civ 3 that I keep saying I, I liked and wish would come back is was the uh, possibility and risk of, of destroying world wonders and then them becoming like ruins that generates like tourism value and stuff like that uh, after the fact. Because like in real life, none of those ancient wonders of the worlds, except for the pyramids, are still standing. Like everyone, and of even them, they like, are an attack. Yeah, I mean they'll be there for a while, but they're not what they used to be. That's for sure. Well, they had all of their, they had all the pretty stripped off of, like there, right. there used to be a whole big, beautiful, what was it, limestone coat on the outside that's uh, yeah, and, and, and the gold, and, yeah. and the gold, uh, yeah, the gold top. Yeah, I think I really like what Casper GM said in this thread. Or my biggest objection to the current system. <laughs> is how in all circumstances, a normal age is the worst that can happen to you. Because you... <laughs> yeah, at least in the Dark Age, you've got those fancy like policies, some of yeah. which are actually like good and can have value. 
and it's also frustrating when you go past it enough to get to normal age, but you can't quite reach the golden age, and you're like, oh, there's all these points yes. wasted now. And and it kind of goes to his other objection, which is how the dedications are generally poorly balanced, and how you're always choosing from the same dedication in each game for the same era, and also how increasingly. So it's, well, it's, I'm going to use monumentality for the cheaper and faith buying of builders and settlers and traders that just makes all the other choices seem like, eh, like I very much like the system. My biggest objection is indeed how the normal era, and again, I like how Casper phrased it, is the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you is maybe not necessarily even one dark age, but successive dark ages. But even then, in some cases, because, oh, now I don't have access to those policies that Jason alluded to, I, I actually, in some cases, might want a couple of Dark Ages in a row as compared to going to a normal age, which does not seem normal. Well, and then on top of that, you know, going into the Dark Age means that you also open up the possibility of your next era being a heroic age, which is just an even better golden age. So my issue with the era system is entirely based on the fact that, oh, look, we got era dedications. Oh, look, they're all the same as last. Yeah, there needs to be a little more variety in there because I'm so often doing free inquiry until that goes away and then it's just build things or the one for steam. Heartbeat of steam. Heartbeat of steam. Yeah. yeah. You're making the same choice repeatedly every game and that's not fun. Like, I, I have, I don't think there are, there are era dedications that I have never chosen and I have mm. won every type of victory since I those have been added. So, I finally started using the espionage one in the uh, later game for like the first time ever because I had to use my spies to stop someone from winning a space race victory. That's one of the ones that's actually worth using. Yeah, it's, it's usually not the one I take. Good. Yeah, it, it, the the late game ones really just depend on what victory you're going going. I, I think my biggest issue with the current era system, and I like it in principle. I like that the whole world is in an an era at the same time, like as opposed to the old system where each sieve entered and exited Ooh. eras, like, you know, whenever, you know, they had to think for it. Um, but my biggest objection to it is actually just the pace of the game as a whole, especially on the higher difficulty. Because uh, the issue is that with all the bonuses that the uh, AI players get, and then with much the human player has to work extra hard to catch up to those the game rushes through the era so fast. Like, I consistently enter the medieval era in 600 BC, which is, like, in actual history is before, I think, even the classical era was supposed to have started. I think... Oh, yeah. The classical era was something, like, started at, like, 500 or 300 BC or something it, like It's, like, the, right around the time of the Greek uh, Renaissance, so roughly I, around 400 BC, that era. I'm routinely seeing, uh, you know, the Renaissance start and Caravel showing up on, on my borders on continents maps, you know, like before 1 AD, you know, before Christ was supposed to have been born. <laughs> People were already in the Renaissance. The Roman Empire hasn't fallen. We're in the Renaissance. You know, uh, that's the thing that annoys me the most. Like, it used to just be a nagging thing in older versions of Civ, but since Civ 5 and Civ 6, where there's actually like gameplay mechanics, that are tied to what era you're in, I feel like it's that much more important now to, like, pace and balance the game so that these eras happen, like, roughly when they're supposed to. Like, I'm okay if the medieval era starts in, like, 50 BC, you know, instead of uh, 300 <laughs> AD. Like, that's not a big deal. But 600 BC, that's... When you're a whole era and a half ahead of, like, actual history, 
that's when it really starts to like annoy and frustrate me because this do- also does things like it limits the window of opportunity for unique units. It it you know uh, and it it just like screws up with a lot of the the feeling of like where I am in terms of progress in the game. Right, like I'm looking at the year. Right, and I'm like, oh, it's 1200 uh, AD. Like, okay, it makes sense that I'm like in the medieval era, but then like I get the notification that someone else is researching industrial era texts, and I'm like, what the heck? Um, yeah, I, I have I have no objection to it not keeping pace with real history, but the objection is more about, as you said, the opportunity cost. Where, wait, I'm sorry, what what just happened to this era? I mean, yes, we know Grand Columbia is perfectly fine with this, but <laughs> besides that, and they're getting more commandant generals more quickly. Right. Well, and it's other things too, like the city states like cancel their quests and give you new quests when a new era starts. So, like, that's another example of a thing where, like, the the pacing of the eras really needs to be, you know, more finely tuned. And, and like, I'm getting to the point where I think that in future versions of, of Civ, like for Civ 7 or whatever, instead of the higher difficulties giving buffs to the AI, I really think Firaxis needs to experiment with the idea of maybe just slowing down the human player so that the pace of the game over the era stays about the same, and it's just the human player playing catch-up to keep on pace rather than the human player having to try to accelerate ahead with all the uh, AIs. Or we could just change the year that each turn corresponds to. Well, I mean, yeah, there's that too, but if if you're giving buffs to the the AIs, then they're still gonna, you know, you know, like, if if the game is, if all that stuff is paced for, like, the, you know, prince or king or whatever difficulty, and you're playing on, you know, emperor or mortal or deity like the ais are gonna shoot ahead of all that stuff. well that's fine just have the date per turn the date on each turn alter based on what difficulty it is so that on harder difficulties earlier turns have higher numbers yeah well i mean one of my other complaints with the with the you know last few iterations of civ in particular is i also wish there was more time in the earlier half of the game and less time in the later half of the game like i i, I wish that the like ancient through like say medieval era was like on epic game speed and the rest of the game was played on like normal or quick because those are the parts of the game that i enjoy the most is that that first half and i want that to last as long as possible because i enjoy the later part of the best me and there's also the option of the later era starts as well so you know you you could also have that option but yeah i i guess it yeah that's a personal preference thing so there's no one right answer, and, you know, Canis and I might disagree considerably. <laughs> part of me wants to troll. I was going to say, part of me wants to troll this conversation a little bit, and then uh, I know Mackie's probably going to have a much more substantial thing to say than what I'm about to say, but I just wanted to troll you a little bit there, Jason, and say, like, well, you want to slow down in the earlier era, then go play this, you know, go play Old World. Um, wait, what? <laughs> Epic story. I'm a horrible person. Come. I'm an horrible, horrible person. Excommunicated. <laughs> it's unfortunate though, because Old World is made by Soren Johnson, and there are a I know, lot of it's, good it's, things. There are very about nothing to do with the game itself. Nothing to do with the game itself. where it is. I forget if we if I asked this in previous episodes, but is Old World a timed exclusive, or is this expected to forever be an epic exclusive? It's probably a timed exclusive. Anybody I would expect so. There's no formal announcement one way or the other. No, no. Anyone who puts a game on Epic as an exclusive permanently is just asking for trouble because they're just never going to get a good audience. Yeah. Well, not Speaking of Epic asking for trouble, better store and changes its business practices, but that's not yeah. going to happen anytime soon. Well, I'm, speaking of asking for trouble, what were you going to say, Mackie? Yeah, 
why not have a slider for two different things that you can adjust the arrow length if you wanted longer arrows or something but also if you could if you wanted to do like to give them both what they want in that if you could adjust make the early game arrows longer and the late game shorter or vice versa depending on how you want Oh yeah, and I've proposed in in the past ideas for Civ Six to have like a more robust like slider system uh, for uh, difficulty specifically uh, inspired by like sports games where you know you've got sliders for all sorts of different AI behavior. Like I'd like to see maybe there be difficulty sliders for AI handicaps and then a separate slider for maybe user handicaps. So you know you can lower you know like for example I you know could lower my handicap you know, my science handicap as low as it'll go and, and then not have to raise the AIs and then get that, you know, more uh, consistently paced game that I was talking about. But you could also do that, yeah, with the uh, with game length. And maybe even for each specific era, have a slider that says, hey, I want the, you know, classical era to last the longest because that's my favorite yeah. era to play. Yeah. Or Canis can, 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 can make it the modern era, you know, whichever. What if we set up the game to work at different so that eras are global golden eras and global dark eras, so that different things happen that way. Mm. Oh, so every Civ in the in the world is in a golden age or a dark age at the same or, time? Or or every Civ, like if if there's like a global golden era, if you're in a personal dark era, it would just be a normal era, that kind of thing. And or if you were to see a global dark uh-huh. era, you would want to put all civs that were in golden eras as regular eras. Yeah, or maybe even just a regional one, like, you know, maybe on a continent-by-continent basis, or like... The map's all too small for that. And the way yeah, it finds continents is weird. Well, but it also could be something where it's just, like, the civilizations who have met each other, like, progress through the eras at one pace, and uh, like, the, you know, in a, like a continent's map where you're actually separated by an ocean, you don't meet each other until caravels come around. This is giving my color brain headache. Yeah, well, it, the, the pro- uh, yeah, the problem with the... Problem. Mm. I'm talking more about, yeah. like, again, oh. like, just high-in-the-sky yeah. ideas for maybe, like, a Civ 7. Maybe you could have a system like that where regions of the world are in, you know, Golden Ages or Dark Ages at the same time instead of... I feel just like that's a better time. mod territory. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, just throw it out there. Because that's the way it worked, in again, in, in real life. It was, you know, Europe had a Dark Age, and it, it wasn't just, you know, one country in Europe. It was pretty much the entire continent. And then, you know, the Arabian... Uh, nations were all, you know, prospering in a golden age at the same mm-hmm. time. You, you need player agency, though. So, like, in a ah. game like Civ, that's hard to implement, because you can get penalized for choices other uh, factions make too easily, potentially. Is Possibly. it a penalty kind of... if everybody's affected, though? Well, well everybody in of... your region, right? So you can have, like, a minus yield or something that, say, two-thirds of the world doesn't have arbitrarily because the other people near you suck. And uh, that, that's not a good luck in a strategy game. I'm kind of looking in between kind of what Canis and Feller are saying, which is, okay, it's a global Dark Age, but based on your progress, your ability to manage that Dark Age is based on what it is that you have done. So someone who wasn't managing things very well, guess what? And I'm just using numbers as an example, completely in a vacuum. You're minus 20% yield, but you actually manage things a little better. You're minus 10%, if that's something that we wanted to look at, so that there was still player agency, but at the same time, it was okay, everyone's feeling the effect in some way. It's just how you're feeling that effect. And you could also play with, you know, minus or buffs to uh, certain aspects of the gameplay as well. So that it didn't feel like, well, I got completely screwed over because someone else was doing something, which I agree would totally suck. 
while at the same time trying to address the issues that we have with the current era system. I'm not convinced that this is a way that we want to go, but if we were going to try that, I wouldn't want it to be that, well, you know, because of everyone else's performance or or something, or even, hey, everyone else did a whole bunch of great stuff, so I'm just going to piggyback on for the Golden Age. Sure, you can piggyback, but you're not going to be able to piggyback like someone else has, because you really didn't put that much effort into it. I don't see how that's attractive, because, like, at that point, you have what is... It's a cosmetic mechanic from a standpoint of winning the game because you're (laughs) like you have differences in outcome right now based on what players do, right? And that does the same thing. You get a different outcome based on what players do. So it's like basically like tweaking the age system we have at present. Um, But it it would also be a little frustrating if everybody is globally slowed down just because it would make the game take longer for basically no reason. If the game just decided, let's put a global dark age on, and that wouldn't really like hurt the outcome like the same person who was playing the best would still win but at that point it just feels kind of pointless uh, especially well, compared unless, to the era stuff that we have right now unless the ages like dan said do have different like degrees of effectiveness on different civilizations so maybe if you're in a dark age and you did overexpand and have a sprawling empire maybe that is worse for you than someone who you know had just a handful of you know large and loyal cities like that's the way it would work in, in civ 6 now is if you've got a really expansive civilization, uh, you know, that loyalty pressure might cause some of your outer, you know, frontier cities to flip. Whereas that, you know, tighter, more compact uh, Maya-like civilization is not going to have any problems with the Dark Age at all. Well, okay, but then why have an external factor outside the player's control versus having them manage their error score the way it is right now? Well, I'm not saying that's the way that it, it should work. I'm just saying that that's, you know, an example of how it, it could work. I'm not saying it would be better or worse, just... You know, that's how I would see it if it were to happen. I just think that any mechanic we include would need a very solid element of players' choices interacting with it. Otherwise, it's really not good for a strategy game. Like, you can do RNG right, you can do events right, you can do whatever right, but player agency still needs to have a very significant impact on the outcome when it comes to interacting with the mechanic. Yeah, and I could maybe mm. also see, like, for example, maybe if Civ, we've talked before about wanting, like, cooperative victories and, and stuff like that uh, come back in some yes. form. And if, if Civ 7 were, like, designed with that, at, with cooperative victories as, like, a fundamental, like, game, you know, design element, I could maybe see something like that working better. Because then a, a larger part of the game's, you know, design philosophy is about, like, you know, not only doing what's best for you, but also doing what's best for your, you know, neighbors and close allies, because, you know, their instability potentially also, you know, destabilizes your empire. You could make it really cancerous by uh, implicating modern politics as the line for the you could also uh, uh, joint win. Could you imagine? Gonna... Could you imagine the salt? <laughs> Uh, and actually, like, kind of on that point, uh, like, I could also maybe see a system working where maybe as you get into the later eras and the world is more globalized, maybe then you do shift towards having global Dark Ages or Golden Ages, whereas up to that point, it is, you know, Civ-specific. But then, you know, you get into, you know, global economies and politics and stuff like that, and then it's kind of, you know, we all crash or burn. Maybe that just also... to... Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, Jason. Maybe no, even bring it back to the era within score within uh, Civilization Six right now, and failure mentioning you know player agency in possible changes to this um, uh, approach mechanic you know Civ Seven and beyond. Um, one thing that I would like to see changed, and it's to a lesser extent than you know the making the 
uh, dedications more meaningful in terms of choice and having it so that the normal era is not the worst of both worlds. Also, the little thing about, particularly when you randomize, but not even that, it's just kind of, hey, congratulations, you randomed into the Maya, you have the unique unit right from the start of the game, you have an era score because I started with that. And I know I've mentioned this on the show before, but I just kind of want to include it in here, which is, no, how about you get that era score when you build that first unit yourself rather than getting it? Because now it's like, hey, what kind of era are you in? Uh, well, actually, either, you know what, I really wanted to get to a golden age, and I didn't have to do much of anything except, you know, luck into this. You know, like, there's there's luck, too, for, hey, you're the first to settle on this continent, or you're the first by side this natural wonder. I'm like, nah. But that particular thing with the unit thing, no, that should be something I think that the players should have to do. And, no, it's not going to be a great threshold for you to do that. Well, damn, they're going to have no problem building that in that era and get that era score. Yeah, that's fine, but and it's just a, kind of one of those little things where it's just kind of, but I didn't do anything other than kind of yay you. No thanks. Yeah, you're just getting rewarded for things you would have done anyway. Yeah, but even actually have the, the player do it. <laughs> yeah, even though the the doing of the thing that you wanted to do should be its own reward. Well, yes, playing Civ should be its own reward. Speaking of its own reward, listening to Polycast is its own reward. Did you know that? Yes. <laughs> okay, I'm asking some very biased people here, obviously. Um, also, shout out to those uh, in the live chat uh, on YouTube, or at least near the start of it, to Alan Silver uh, slash TG, and also uh, Timothy Burles, uh Timothy001, who was a guest uh, a couple of times in Season 12. Hi, right back to you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for the tribute. We appreciate it. Because you, you cannot get back the time that you listen to Polycast to do something else. So you made a choice, and we appreciate the choice that you made, and we would like to acknowledge it and honor you. And you realize in accepting to- that, that you have 10 years of uh, forced peace, right? Or 10 turns. Uh, that's, well, that, that's okay, because in those 10 years, I, those 10 turns, however we're going to measure that, in that time frame, I can be preparing for the next conflict, and I've lulled them into a false sense of security that this will continue beyond the 10 turns. Yeah, well, just hope they don't get nukes in that time. They'll probably still bother you to move your troops from their territory. Yeah. It's going to be one of those languages where the word for ceasefire is also the word for reload. (laughs) (laughs) I forget which language that is. (laughs) I think that tells you a lot about their culture. Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) It's true. You will ceasefire while you're reloading. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, just hold on. When I attack you again, I want to do it just right. Just give me a sec. I want to make it meaningful for you and me, okay? <laughs> I'm going to give you a meaningful fist to the face. No. Look, I'm just relieving you of the burden of leadership. You really should be thanking me. I'm just streamlining your payroll by eliminating your governments in all these cities. And that's a really big payroll, too. Especially you. I mean, you probably cost the most, so <laughs> I'm saving your economy, yes. That's why I went straight for your capital. I, I remember reading something recently uh, where I don't remember what language it was, but their word for war means desire to have more cows. Oh, I almost <laughs> trolled you and channeled Phil. I was like, you read something recently. Good for you. I'm a, yeah, wow, I'm I just, did. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> That's not my flavor of trolling. Come on now. <laughs> I forget but what it's your influence, it was, Phil. Though, but definitely an insight into that culture. Uh, also, speaking of insight, I have appreciated the fact that now, in addition to being the second most frequent regular co-host on this show in terms of episode appearances, I'm now the second most frequent guest, with 11, including this episode, so yay me, I achieve an unlock. <laughs> <laughs> There's no achievements for second best Dan. Oh my. 
Well, I understand why you would say that, Jason. You don't even get second, usually. Um, wait, what? Wow! Huh? Not in multiplayer, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> we could play a 1v1 game in multiplayer, and I'd still have trouble getting uh, second place. Oh my Apparently. gosh, well, this is this is just not stopping, because I, th- I, th- I was going to say, yeah, you probably have difficulty rolling the turnover. Man, I am just, oh, I'm just on a nasty roll here. I'm wow, going to get hate mail. Mackie's writing the first one right now. <laughs> the Sanskrit word, gavasti, gavisti, pardon my lack of Indian speaking, means a desire for more power. That might be it. Well, it's there one other thing, so hey. Speaking of it. Thank you for listening to the 362nd episode of Polycast. I'm Dan Q, and I have been joined by, or more accurately, I have joined Canis Albinus. Oh, shoot. This is the part where that's supposed to happen. Uh, As Canis regathers his thoughts, or not, Makalua. I'm finally getting the hang of this now that Dan's leaving. Oh, well. Ah oh, well, better late than never. Question mark. Man, I'm just, yeah. oh, I'm just, wow, I'm just out with the thorns. Did, when did you take this morning? Dang. <laughs> Mackie would like some shipped pronto. The main team. Dan drank some fill juice, and it's been a pleasure as always, Dan. <laughs> Thank you kindly for the the pleasure, not not the fill juice. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> Mega Bears fan. <laughs> oh no. Oh shoot! Grandpa is the neighbor. I'm awake now. <laughs> <laughs> you're awake long enough to know that you're about to be asleep for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, that's how it feels. Someone's in your room. <laughs> and thanks to everyone for listening. And remember, keep on sipping. Civilization 4, 5, 6, and Beyond Earth Sun Clips, copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.